Welcome to the State of the Outdoors podcast, where we tell you straight what's going on at the state, local, and federal level that impacts our outdoor heritage. Our intent is to inform and empower sportsmen and women. We want to encourage them to get involved and be part of the process. We will try not to editorialize or sensationalize the issues of the day. My partner in this venture is none other than our 4th District Director for Kentucky Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Mr. Ben Bishop. Today we are finally back podcasting live in person from Mordecai's Restaurant in Springfield, Kentucky. What's up, Ben? What you been doing, man? Uh, so I guess since last time we spoke, we've had, what, waterfowl season go through, some squirrel season, but uh, I had a less than average waterfowl season. Had a pretty good time down in uh, the Slough's WMA in nice. Henderson. But uh, locally, yeah less than stellar but it's always good to be out yeah. a little bit of squirrel hunting done but gearing up for turkey season now yeah and we're sitting outside at mordecai's <laughs> like 65 degrees you know yeah it's nice it's nice yeah Sun going down it's a little yeah. cold but it's nice yeah i'm ready for turkey season too but I'm, I'm gonna try to get in some predator hunting here a little bit and um you know i've got a couple of new folks i'm mentoring we're gonna do some mm -hmm some scouting trips but yeah i had a pretty weird waterfowl season man since we last talked in december like very weird how so um we didn't kill a single duck like just geese we crushed the geese <laughs> crushed them we, we're gonna have to double the goose sausage recipe because that's you know we eat a few like mm -hmm. fresh yeah but most of what we do is make um like a summer sausage out of them mm -hmm. i think they're gonna have to double the recipe i've got 14 <laughs> pounds of goose meat in my in my for my freezer just me um, and i know some of the other people that that we went hunting with have a bunch and it just was one of those seasons and then as soon as goose season ended there were ducks everywhere yep oh yeah or excuse me excuse me as soon as duck season ended yeah there was ducks everywhere yep, they came through we were still out goose hunting for the first two weeks of february <laughs> so that was kind of like God, it, it, it's it's maddening. I'll be standing right. in that timber with some open water in front of me, and there's ice everywhere, and I'm like, <laughs> I can hear them, you know, here yep. come the geese. And then uh, some teal landed right over the top of my head, like oh, didn't nice. see me in the timber. It scared the living bejesus <laughs> out of me. I thought someone was behind me throwing sticks or something at me because, you know, when they come, they come by so fast. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I didn't make a noise like, oh, but <laughs> I did, I did like. I was trying to sit still, but it scared me. I moved, man. I moved yeah, pretty we big. Had, we had one morning we had a group of five young hooded mergansers come through out of nowhere, just dove straight over top of us. I mean, if I would have stuck my gun up, they would have plowed into it. You could have killed and them with a gun. Yeah, I mean, if they – That's an illegal method of take, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have done that, but, yeah. I, hell, we wouldn't have had time. Right. I mean, they come through so fast, and oh. it sounds like jets going over. Oh, yeah, yeah. When those when they are cupping their wings on final, yep. you don't realize how fast they're still going. You and think they're going slow because you can shoot them with a shotgun, but 
They're really not moving that for, slow, man. For such a little bird, oh they make God. a lot of noise going through there. Yeah, I, I could have. If I'd held up a tennis racket, I probably could have got two teal. <laughs> but I thought I'd, I thought they were going to kill me. I'd be all right with those geese, though. Yeah, That's I good, mean, we, good pastrami. We did, um, you know, my buddy uh, Brian Mackey down um, uh, in uh, Hardin County. You know, down near Sonora. Mm-hmm. He he had he has a really good way of doing like a field set with those skinnies. Those dive bomb skinnies. Oh yeah, and yep. um, that was where we were most productive between him and me and uh, our good friend Roger Lapointe from Kentucky Hunters for the Hungry. We whacked them pretty good, but then my good buddy Larry Richards and, and his um, uh, his good friend that he's been waterfowl hunting with a while, they really did did really put the geese uh, in the freezer. So that was a good deal, good but. Um, so uh, it's national issues, man. You're up. What's going on at the national level? I've got two things I'm going to go over real quick because I know you've got a lot to talk about. But besides the new administration. Besides the new administration. Well, we'll start off with that. Then uh, the new administration appointed uh, Representative Deb Halland of New Mexico as Secretary of the Department of the Interior. She uh, She's from the uh, Laguna Pueblo tribe, so we have a uh, Native American in there now. She's the uh, vice chair, or she was the vice chair of the House uh, House Committee on Natural Resources, and uh, she was also served as a chairwoman on a subcommittee for national parks, forests, and public lands. So she's uh, she's got the credentials for it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the second thing we'll go over as uh, uh, House Bill eight hundred three, Federal House Bill Federal House Bill eight hundred three, and uh, it passed the House already. It's the uh, support. The protect or the Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act, and uh, that was uh, brought forth by Representative Raul Grijalva. I think I'm saying that right. You're close. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> it just sounds. <laughs> good. I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> Raul Grijalva. That's what we'll go with. And yeah, he, he's out of uh, he's out of Arizona. You're not the first person that's crushed his name, so don't no, worry about no, it. No, probably not. Probably won't be the last. Yeah. Uh, it was brought forth by him and uh, 16 other members from the House. And uh, it passed on February 26, and uh, that that act consists of nine bills in that, which designate one and a half million acres of public lands as wilderness, and incorporates more than a thousand river miles as uh, as well. And uh, the nine things, uh, the nine bills within that, is the Grand Canyon Protection Act, the San Gabriel Mountains, Foothills, and Rivers Protection Act. The Northwest California Wilderness Recreation and Working Forest Act, the Central Coast Heritage Protection Act, Rim of the Valley Corridor Preservation Act, the Colorado Recreation and Economy Act, the Colorado Wilderness Act, the Wild Olympics Wilderness and Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, and then finally the Southwestern Oregon Watershed Salmon Protection Act. So that's a lot of stuff going into one. That's that, yeah. that's a fairly major bill that passed the House. It's Absolutely now, is. Now moving on to the Senate. I don't know when they're going to hold a vote on that right. in the Senate. But Well, you know, what that was, that was nine smaller um, bills that would have right. never made it. Right. So right. it's one of the things that they do in the federal legislature is they'll all band together because they're all very similar. And that those none of those nine made any new public lands. Right. They just designated – existing public lands to be wilderness which makes it off limits for development mm-hmm. and then the, they designated 
the rivers to be wild and scenic rivers, which once they get that designation, they're completely off limits. So yep. it, it made existing public lands. I've had people say to me, I can't believe that as soon as Biden got the job, we're going to designate all this, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. And I'm like, ooh, slow down, dude. You right. know, it, it, this right. was already public land. Yep, exactly. And uh, a third thing I'll add in, uh, we just talked about it, was uh, I believe we I mentioned it in the first ever yeah, we've Podcast been doing this for a couple did. years now. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was in the first one where I mentioned the uh, the North Carolina, the, the Blue Laws. The, oh, and, yeah, the in no North Carolina on, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, the yep. no hunting on Sunday. Well, North Carolina passed uh, limited hunting on Sundays. So hopefully that's a domino effect and uh, other states follow suit with that. Right on. But with all that being said, that was a lot for the, for the one house bill. But on to you for uh, – yeah, I don't think we know stuff. what the rest of it's going to look like with the new administration and public right. lands and public water. Right. Um, so, um, okay, state issues, there's a lot to cover. Uh, we have one of these after every quarterly uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting to try to break down the what's going on there, but there's always additional state issues. And if you've been following the State of the Art uh, Outdoors podcast that we do here, um, it really is uh, – a longer podcast in March because we have a legislative session that kind of ramps up every December with bill requests. But the the legislative session here in Kentucky begins every January and runs through March. So that's where we're at right now. So we actually have some legislation to discuss in addition to the Fish and Wildlife Commission business and the Department of Fish and Wildlife Commission or Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources business. So the first thing that every that's been on everyone's mind um, since last uh, late last summer, early last fall is uh, we had uh, experienced uh, our commissioner um, at the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources was uh, um, offered a one year contract by the tourism cabinet and the, and, uh, the Bashir administration when the Fish and Wildlife Commission wanted him to have a two-year contract, and there were some smaller issues in and amongst that. Uh, and what happened was Mr. Storm uh, did not uh, take the one-year contract, and there's a lot of reasons why, according to him and according to the commission, and, and, and equal reasons why he should or should not have, according to Tourism and the Bashir administration. But the bottom line is his uh, existing contract expired last June, and he did not take the one-year contract they gave him. So he was then asked to leave office. The idea that he was fired is not true. He was asked to leave office when his contract expired. The Fish and Wildlife Commission then um, decided to sue the uh, Bashir administration and use the Attorney General to be their lawyer. And the Attorney General agreed to represent them, and they did file suit. They did not file suit against the governor. They filed suit against two of his cabinets one being the Finance and Administration Cabinet and the other being the Tourism, Arts, and Heritage Cabinet. Uh, that went to court uh, and on, uh, in Octo- on October the 28th of last year, Franklin County Circuit Court Judge, Judge Wingate, dismissed the case. Um, and the Fish and Wildlife Commission appealed it uh, to the appellate court. And so it still sits there today at the appellate court. So... Um, we last had a commissioner, someone running the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources officially as the head of the agency um, in June of last year, and we still don't have someone. And uh, 
We're currently, as sportsmen and women, waiting for the results of this lawsuit, and there's some uh, legislation pending as well that we'll talk about here in a second. So that's the update on the lawsuit. It's still at the appellate court. Uh, legislation that's going on in both houses right now, Senate Bill 46 uh, would make uh, certain methods of gun storage illegal. Basically, if you didn't have your firearm stored in a safe, uh, you would be a criminal. Um, that is the kind of legislation we've had two years in a row, two different sessions. It's nothing new. Senate Bill 46 is not moving, has not moved. Um, Senate Bill 188 is a, a safer boating bill, and uh, that bill is much needed. Um, that bill is really stemming from um, we've had entirely too many um, – drownings in the state this year more than we've had in previous years and um, we're trying to get some some more boater uh, training for folks uh, before they operate a watercraft and then also some other you know mox nicks issues uh, around making um, boating in the commonwealth safer you know uh, more uh, use of uh, personal flotation devices um, and some other ideas so senate bill 188 is for safer boating it has not moved out of committee either. Um, okay, and the next bill is uh, Senate Bill 261, which is Stream and Wetland Mitigation Credit Program and Easements. Um, basically, this is one of those bills that could be used for good or evil. Um, you know, it, it establishes um, new and better ways to do stream and wetland mitigation, sets, sets up a credit program and potentially could set up conservation easements of the areas that were that were reclaimed. But you never really know um, how it's going to be used in practice. But anyway, Senate Bill 261 passes Senate 36 to 0, and there's a companion bill in the House, uh, House Bill 535, that is moving. So if you're interested in stream and wetland mitigation and credit programs associated, um, look up 261, Senate Bill 261 and House Bill 535. House Bill 70 is a, was another gun control bill. It hasn't moved at all. House Bill 80 was another gun control bill. It hasn't moved at all. These bills are still in committee if they haven't moved at all, which is the first step to becoming law. Um, House Bill 83 was a very broad, deep, uh, sweeping gun control bill um, that's very similar to House Bill 192 from last year that that really started an uproar in Kentucky. Um, uh, and since 192 didn't go anywhere last year, I think when it got re, uh, re-proposed as House Bill 83 this year, nobody really is giving it any attention, and uh, it still hasn't moved out of committee. Uh, House Bill 107 would um, uh, establish a constitutional amendment in Kentucky that we, the people, are allowed to have a clean and healthy environment. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that see that as a companion to our constitutional right that we got passed a few years back. We have a constitutional right in Kentucky to uh, hunt and fish, and they see that House Bill 107 would give us the constitutional right to the um, clean environment we need to hunt and fish, but House Bill 107 has not moved. Uh, House Bill 111 would actually close a loophole in boater registration in the state. If you've ever been down to any of the bigger lakes in the state, you know, Lake Cumberland or, or you know, like Dale Hall or any, 
you'll see there's quite a bit of boats, and especially the bigger boats, you know, I'm talking like houseboats and yachts, um, are registered with what they call a U.S. Coast Guard um, service, USGCS, US, yeah, U.S. Coast Guard, USCG, excuse me, U.S. Coast Guard uh, uh, registration number. Well, if they have a U.S. Coast Guard registration number, they don't have to pay Kentucky uh, registration. Um, and so there's quite a few boats on our lakes that pay nothing to be there. And uh, House Bill 111 uh, was uh, crafted to close that loophole, uh, but it has not moved out of committee. Um, House Bill 192 is the budget this year. And for those who don't remember, uh, the governor, it doesn't matter who the governor is, it doesn't matter what party the governor is, the governor always submits their budget to the House Budget Committee chairman who turns the budget into a bill. And then that's how the budget is debated. It's debated as a bill. And so this year, House Bill 192 is the budget. Um, there was a lot of discussion uh, last uh, July and August uh, in and around social media with sportsmen and women and, uh, and a few other shows that we have. You know, either we have Facebook shows or, or radio shows where there were some people claiming that the reason that uh, – um, uh, our commissioner did not get the contract that the Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, intended to give him was that the governor was going to come after the money in Fish and Wildlife again. If you remember um, when Governor Bashir first took office, the first budget cycle, he tried to take uh, $5.5 million a year for two years for a total of $11 million out of Fish and Wildlife. And there was a lot of chicken little, the sky is falling, um, we didn't get the commissioner we wanted, um, and so now the governor's coming after the money that's really going to happen. Well, that did not happen. The governor didn't come after any um, significant amount. It was less than 1% difference this year's budget with last year's full budget for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And when the Senate got through marking it up, the Senate marked it back up to 100%. So. The department was already getting 99.7 or something percent of their budget, uh, same as they got last year, and the Senate marked it up to be 100% of what they got last year. So um, the governor did not come after the budget, and the department is going to be fully funded, we believe, when the budget passes probably later this week. Um, House Bill 209 is the only bill uh, for sportsmen uh, and women that has actually made it through both houses and is on the governor's desk to be signed. House Bill 209 improved and protected game meat donation to Hunters for the Hungry and the distribution of that game meat to the needy. Um, House Bill 394 is an interesting bill that's moving very quickly, uh, and it already has moved through the House and has been sent over to the Senate, and it would um, empower our Fish and Wildlife Commission to not just pick the commissioner. So the one thing that Judge Wingate said in the lawsuit that was filed, the one thing Judge Wingate said when he ruled last October 28th was that the Fish and Wildlife Commission did have the authority to pick whom they wanted to be the commissioner. Um, what, what is still up in the air is do they have the authority to write the contract set the terms of the contract, including compensation, with no input whatsoever from the cabinet, uh, the Tourism, Arts, and Heritage Cabinet, or the Finance Administration Cabinet. So that's what's in the lawsuit. House Bill 394 seeks to give the commission that same authority through legislation. 
Um, House Bill 446 is the next bill. That's a Fish and Wildlife Commissioner appointment reform bill. Uh, currently, we send five names uh, when there's a vacancy in the um, on our nine-member Fish and Wildlife Commission board. Um, we can send as many as five names to the governor's office. Most people think those people are elected. We don't do that. <clears throat> the way that works is you go to a district nomination meeting and... At that meeting, any person can nominate any other person. Uh, so I can nominate my cousin Jim, and he's officially nominated. If there's five people nominated because one other person nominated them, then there's no vote whatsoever, and all five names go to the governor. And the governor gets to pick from that list of five whomever the governor wants. If there's six people nominated, there is a vote. But all that vote does is truncate the list back to five and the voting numbers are not sent with the list up to the governor's office so even if there was six and there was a vote all it does is cut it from six down to five and five names still go to the governor's office with no voting no vote totals and we sportsmen and women really had very little input whatsoever other than nominating who we wanted generally speaking the person we want the most does not get appointed by the governor and the governor then appoints off that list of five that is sent to his office. In fact, we have a sitting commissioner right now on our commission, uh, I believe, who was the only person nominated in their district. So he, he was nominated, there was nobody else nominated, and the governor picked him because there was nobody else to pick from because the list that made it from that district to the governor's office was one. Um, so House Bill 446 would truncate that list by law from five to three, and there would be a vote every single time, and the list would go to the governor's office informed by the vote. So the vote totals would be there, and the governor um, would be uh, – the, the, bill would, the bill says the governor should appoint the number one vote-getter. It doesn't say the governor will. So the governor could go to the second person with cause or the, or the third person with cause. The bottom line is – there would always be a vote. The sportsman would always have a voice. Um, unfortunately, 446 has not moved at all. House Bill 502 is the next bill. It's actually the exact same gun control bill as House Bill 83. I don't know how the Speaker of the House and the administration in the House of Representatives um, allows two exact bills. These bills are exact. So House Bill 83, which is sweeping gun control, is exactly the same as House Bill 502. It's even sponsored by the same um, advocate for gun control. Uh, House Bill 535 is a stream mitigation companion bill to Senate Bill 261. So if you're interested in in um, uh, stream and uh, river and, and mitigation credits and all that jazz, uh, you want to really look up Senate Bill 261, which has already passed, but Right now, House Bill 535 is still being debated and moved. Uh, it looks like it's in the Appropriations Committee right now, which means it's it's probably going to pass and go to the governor's desk. So, um, if you're into uh, stream mitigation and you know mitigation credits and and fee in lieu of properties and conservation easements, if that's something that is important to you, uh, you probably need to start contacting your legislators on House Bill 535 and Senate Bill 261 and probably the governor's office. 
The next one is House Bill 549. Um, House Bill 549 is kind of an antidote to all the gun control bills. It is a bill uh, proffered to secure the rights of citizens to own and purchase uh, firearms and ammunition. And it also secures the rights of vendors or uh, FFL licensed dealers to sell guns and ammunition. So 549 uh, unfortunately hasn't moved out of committee either. And um, that takes us to the commission meeting. <coughs> so uh, that's a mouthful in, in between the two of us been in 23 minutes. And now we are up to um, the commission meeting, um, which we now have quarterly. Uh, and I want to remind everybody, it used to be that we had eight meetings a year. Now we only have four meetings a year. And um, so just like every other commission meeting, the first thing that happened is the commissioners uh, discussed and passed the minutes from the December meeting as official. And um, then they talked about the budget. And um, Ms. Cox, who is the administration division and the uh, budgeteer, if you will, uh, for the Department of Fish and Wildlife briefed the budget. And um, she was very happy to brief that there's some excesses of cash in the budget. And there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is there's certain things were not done under COVID. And one of the easiest examples is the conservation camps. Normally we have summer camps for youth every year that are called conservation camps. And those are major expenditures of the budget for both the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources and also for the... Uh, Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is the charity arm of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. And uh, those camps didn't happen. So if you understand, you know, we didn't put on camps for hundreds of kids, then obviously there were some, some you know, observed or experienced savings in the budget. So there's a little bit extra money uh, in the coffers there at Fish and Wildlife. Um, the uh, first action item uh, for the department um, this uh, commission meeting was a real doozy. Um, the, this action item was uh, referenced bobcat hunting, and the regulation number, if you're interested, is three ch KRS Chapter 301 KAR 2 colon uh, semicolon 251 and 301 KAR 3 semicolon 022. Uh, and basically, um, bobcats are, are valuable fur bearers uh, to both fur trappers monetarily in the peak market conditions and taxidermy market into hunters and trappers as a prized harvest. Um, you know, once uh, in our history, uh, bobcats were almost extirpated off the landscape, but we're seeing a significant, uh, as sportsmen, we believe we're seeing a significant increase of bobcats across the landscape. Uh, in the state of Kentucky, and the scientists can tell us that we have bobcats in every single one of the 120 counties uh, in the state of Kentucky. And so what we had um, going on um, about a decade ago was uh, the department was not sure, and the biologists of the department were not sure, um, whether we really had uh, the bobcat population to... Um, sustain the harvest. We had an increased harvest. Uh, be, you know, as sportsmen, we thought it was because there was an increased population, but there really wasn't a scientific basis for the conclusions. And in a, you know, in the utmost caution, the department reduced the season uh, dates, the available dates to take bobcats all the way back to the end of November. And um, 
what used to be uh, a very liberal season and a very long season is, uh, was reduced significantly. And now that we see more Bobcats uh, present on the landscape, um, the sportsmen, uh, through their commissioners, have asked for expanded Bobcat hunting, really season dates, not bag limits, but ex expanded season dates. Um, and the department's been trying to get the data they need about bobcat populations, age structure, and, you know, whether they're um, present in numbers across the entire Commonwealth, even though they're in every county, um, or are there regional uh, large populations regionally, et cetera, et cetera. So the bottom line is the department was trying to get off the ground a scientific study um, from scratch, uh, pun intended. So they were trying to get a cat, uh, bobcat, study off the ground from scratch using volunteer submission of samples. And those samples required the uh, canine tooth from the lower jaw of a bobcat. And that's really the rub, okay, because a canine tooth to get out of the jaw of a cat is a very tough deal. Um, it's not easy to do without breaking the tooth out. So the department was actually asking that sportsmen – uh, hunters and trappers that either, you know, uh, killed a bobcat or trapped and killed a bobcat to submit a 1.5-inch section of the lower jaw. So to cut the jawbone with the canine tooth intact and then send that into the department um, as a uh, voluntary program. Now, it was not very well advertised. If you look at the hunting and trapping guide, it's a paragraph uh, under fur bears and one small picture of a bobcat skull with a little graphic of how to cut the 1.5 inches of jaw out. And so this came up in December. And there was much discussion. It was tabled and it was pushed to this meeting. And at this meeting, um, the department said to expand the season, which is what the sportsmen and women are asking for, we need a better scientific study and we need more samples and we need to do it over a three-year period. And so we recommend that the lower jaw section submission from all harvested by hunting or trapping bobcats um, via the current mandatory excuse me via the current voluntary mail-in program be mandatory. So the department recommended once again that the current voluntary mail-in program of a lower jaw section be mandatory. And so we kill over 2,000 bobcats a year, and so that would be a significant amount of data because right now the department's only getting 5% of that voluntarily. Um, and then there was a significant amount of discussion about um, that really ruins the trophy for hunters and, you know, could we do something different? And it went on for almost two hours, the discussion. Part of this discussion was also that the department recommended that a $5 bobcat hunting permit be required for all licensed hunters. Now, some people would wonder, well, why were we putting another $5 burden on the sportsmen and the sportswomen out there to hunt bobcats? Well, basically, as part of the scientific study, you need to know how many people are actually pursuing a bobcat, how many people are trying to kill one, so that you can then look at how many they actually killed through hunting, and then you can get a hunter success rate. Because if you don't know how many are trying, and all you know is how many are killed, you don't know what the success rate is. And you need that success rate as part of the scientific study. So there was a significant amount of debate about the mandatory submission of bobcat jaw samples with the canine tooth. There was a significant amount of discussion about a $5 hunting permit. And in the end, 
um, after two hours of discussion, and it's something I'm going to get through in probably five minutes on this podcast, um, the bottom line was this. The motion that went forward was to incentivize hunters and trappers to submit samples, to not make it mandatory, but to have an incentive program and to also communicate it better to sportsmen and women across the state. And um, the incentive program works like this. It doesn't matter if you trap them or hunt them. If you're going to try to get the incentive, you must submit a sample from every bobcat you kill. Okay, so a trapper can take five. If a trapper takes two and submits two samples, they get one extra tag the following year. If a trapper takes four and submits those jaw sections as samples, they would get two extra tags the following year. But they have to submit all of their samples. So if they took three, they still have to submit it. Even though two gets them one extra tag, they have to submit the third or they're not going to be eligible. Even though four gets them uh, two extra tags the following season, if they took a fifth, they'd still have to submit the fifth. So it's, to be able to participate in the incentive program to get the extra tags for the following year, you must submit all samples of all cats harvested. Um, and the same thing worked for hunters. A hunter that took two bobcats could get an extra tag for the following year. And if they took the third, they still had to submit that sample. So it's all samples must be submitted if you're going to participate in the incentive program. Um, the commissioners want those extra tags to look a lot like the Sandhill Crane tags. So they would be a paper in-hand tag with your name on it. They would be non-transferable. And so if you are the trapper that took uh, four cats this year, submitted all your samples, and you got two extra tags next year, your bag limit would still be five under the regulation. And then you would have these two additional tags or vouchers for two more cats. So you'd have a total as a trapper that you could take of seven. And the same thing would be true for hunters. The, the bag limit would still be three for the following year. But if you took two this year and submitted your samples, you would be eligible for the incentive of one extra tag next year. So next year, your bag limit of three would be increased because you would have a voucher or a paper permit in your hand for the fourth cat. Now, the commissioners did agree that a permit was necessary for the scientific study to work and work correctly. So what they did with that was they made it free. Now, I don't know how that's going to manifest itself when you log on to fw.ky.gov to get your license. Um, what I can tell you is that it's going to be free. Um, and that uh, incentive program to keep it a voluntary submission um, passed uh, six to one. And um, two hours was just distilled down for you folks in probably 10 minutes. So the next action item was waterfowl hunting requirements and to enhance wildlife management area opportunities. And um, there were six items that the Wildlife Division proposed changes to on WMAs for waterfowl hunting. The first was boat right WMA, was to require all hunters during the regular waterfowl season to check in daily at the morning check station. 
Require all hunters to stop hunting by 2 p.m. daily and check out of the area by accurately completing the daily post-hunt survey provided by the department and submitting the survey at the designated drop point by 3 p.m. the day of the hunt. Allow for the creation of hunting units. Allow hunting away from blinds within units. Mirror the Ballard WMA party spacing requirements. Remove specific limits on numbers of parties in hunting units. And close boat access December 1st to January 31st, except to those participating in department-managed activities, which would mirror the Jenny Hole provisions. So basically, these boat right changes were to increase participation and allow even more waterfowl hunters into boat right, <clears throat> and that would be at the discretion of the manager of boat right. So when you remove the overall limits that are stated in the uh, Kentucky administrative regulation that govern how many people can be in there then what you have is the manager of the wma can allow as many people in as they believe to be safe and you know party hunting for waterfowl the rule is you have to be 200 yards apart so you they would be the manager there at the wma would be allowed the authority and the autonomy to allow more hunters in or less depending on how safe it is to get in and out of there you know what the water levels are if there's a backwater event etc and that um, boat right w those boat right wma changes passed the next one was ballard wma and it was to change the description of ohio river hunting exclusion zone in ballard wma and the northern boundary of the no hunting zone is currently described as 50 yards upstream from dam 53 uh, with the pending removal of dam 53 uh, the Wildlife Division uh, recommended matching the southern boundary language and make the northern boundary 50 yards upstream from the northern border of Ballard WMA. Okay, um, sorry for that interruption. Uh, we are back to uh, the Ballard WMA, and it, the, uh, the recommendation... Um, was that the southern boundary language and make the northern boundary the same, which is 50 yards upstream of the northern border of the Ballard WMA. And this would basically shift the, uh, the line less than 200 yards, and it would have no, uh, no real meaningful impact on waterfowl hunting the area, but it's, it's solely based on Dam 53 is being removed. So if Dam 53 is in the language of... The northern boundary, well, then you need to redefine the northern boundary. So that's pretty simple stuff. And uh, that was the number two issue, Ballard, WMA, and it passed. Um, number three was Ballard, Boatwright, uh, and the quota hunt areas of SLU's WMAs. And it was to change the daily shot shell limit to 25 shells. Basically, you can have a box of shells now. Used to, used to be there was some weird rule where you could actually have less than a box of shells in there, which makes absolutely no sense. Right. Um, and so now the daily shot shell limit is 25, and uh, the limit is currently 15 shells a day, unless canned goose limits are greater than two or duck limits are greater than three. And, you know, that's just asinine. And so the change to uh, making it 25 uh, shot shells uh, per day uh, in, in Ballard and Boatwright in the quota hunt of slews, that also passed. Uh, the fourth issue was um, slews WMA Jenny whole unit quota hunt periods. Uh, the Wildlife Division recommended to change the allocation of hunting access from five days uh, to two and to three. And so basically what would happen is, is it used to be that um, you got a quota hunt and they gave you five days uh, down on the sloughs. 
what they're saying now is break those five-day quota hunts up into a two-day hunt and a three-day hunt. And instead of one group uh, getting a five-day hunt, they're going to expand opportunity. So it'd be one group that gets uh, a, uh, a, a Thursday-Friday hunt, and then a second group would get a Saturday-Sunday-Monday hunt. Yeah. So you're basically going to expand opportunity and get a whole second group in there. Since it's expanding opportunity for uh, hunters and hunting parties in slews, Jenny uh, Hole unit and the quota hunts. Yeah, the, it, the regular slews is already already that way. Yeah, and, yeah. and it passed easily. Yeah. Um, and then um, the uh, the fifth issue was uh, slews WMA Grassy Pond, Powell's Lake, and Highland Creek units. And um, the, the 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 wildlife division recommended removing. The uh, 14 seasonally drawn blinds from those units, basically just tearing those blinds off the landscape and then allowing as many hunters as they could legally and ethically and safely fit into Slough's Grassy Pond, Powell's Lake, and Highland Creek units um, instead of the only people that could hunt there are those 14 seasonally drawn blinds. So this, again, would be um, more opportunity for more waterfowl hunters. But uh, this one didn't pass. It was tabled. Um, the commissioners were concerned that uh, um, potentially we hadn't communicated to the locals that, that those 14 seasonally drawn blinds, which are very popular, that draw is very popular. Even though the blinds aren't used very much, it's kind of like a pound your chest um, ego thing that you drew one of those blinds. Um, and the WMA managers down there are aware that they're not used as often as they should be, so they want to remove them so that more people can get in there and hunt. The commissioners were concerned that locally that would be a problem, so they tabled that to the next meeting. So if that's important to you, pay attention. That should be coming up again in the June meeting. And then the last one was South Shore WMA. Um, uh, The Wildlife Division recommended removing the requirement to hunt from a blind on the South Shore WMA. So you could actually hunt, you know, you could freelance in timber, do whatever you wanted to do, uh, and that uh, passed easily. Um, the next action item was um, basically uh, the uh, uh, Chapter 301, Kentucky Admin Regulation 4020, um, uh, would be repealed and move the relevant portions into Chapter 301, KAR 2222. And this is something the department's been trying to do a lot. Uh, it was something that... Um, uh, Colonel Gibson and the and the um, conservation officers kind of championed, which is make all of our admin regulations reference hunting, fishing, trapping, and boating more efficient. Uh, try to combine the redundant ones and try to make things easier to understand. And um, basically, this regulation contains specific entry rules for Ballard WMA and allows for the closure of the area during flood events. So. Um, you know, there's flood events down at Ballard, uh, and and it can get really dangerous down there. There are people um, that have applied for a long time to hunt Ballard, and then they get drawn, and they don't live down there. And the, there's a lot of swift water moving through there, and they don't, you know, the, the non-locals, you know, you, you'd you basically be from Menifee County and you've been putting in for five years and you get drawn for Ballard and it doesn't matter if the water's up and it's moving too fast. It took you five years to draw. So you're going, you know, and then you get in there and it's not safe. Um, So this was basically to uh, fix that. And what they wanted to say was a person shall not enter upon the premises of Ballard wildlife manager 
for any reason during the period of October 15th through March 15th except with department-authorized personnel or, or persons participating in department-managed activities. Um, and uh, this was interesting. It was discussed quite a bit. Um, and then it got even more interesting um, in the voting for this thing. Um, you know, um, this was all about trespass by boat during periods of high water or flood um, and that no person that wasn't authorized could be in there in Ballard WMA for any purpose. And, um, you know, the, the high water flood conditions um, should not affect or change the management of the area boundary when marked by yellow signs. But, again, it was more of a safety issue and it was com combining the regulations and um, – you know, um, it, it was a very interesting vote. I'll just say that. So here's how it went down. Um, the chair of the commission asked for a motion, and the commission sat silent. And it, that's a rare occurrence. And finally, um, our youngest uh, commissioner, um, uh, Mr. Lear from the 6th uh, District, he m made a motion that this be passed as written the way the wildlife division uh, wrote it exactly. Um, and then there was an ask for a second and it sat quietly for quite a while while there was an ask for a second. And then uh, Mr. Jones from the first district, uh, he's appointed, not confirmed, but Mr. Jones from the first district uh, decided he was going to second that motion. And then once there's a second, there was asked for a discussion. There was no discussion and they asked for a vote. Well, when, the, when it was voted, the vote went down 3-2-3, three, three, and it was a tie. Now, here's the interesting thing. Mr. Jones, who seconded the motion, didn't vote. So this died 3-3, three to three, um, and changes to combine regulations and make it safer um, during, you know, backwater events and times of swift water um, in Ballard WMA uh, were not – were not changed. Uh, this wasn't tabled. It was a uh, it was a hamstrung vote, three to three. And very interestingly, the gentleman from the first district that seconded the motion didn't vote. So that was uh, that was a new one on me. And I've been I've been attending these things for three or four years. Um, the next one was uh, um, action item six. And um, basically, uh, as with the Ballard regulation, this regulation uh, contains specific infantry rules for Swan Lake unit of Boatwright. Uh, it also included, includes specific camping rules and a limit on the use of firearms to hunt bullfrogs. Um, and the entry rules in this regulation are similar uh, to those described on other WMAs and should be moved into this regulation. So this was, again, combining and making things more efficient. And so the Wildlife Division recommend repealing KAR 4050 and moving it to KAR 2222, which if you remember the one I just talked about, that was to repeal KAR 4020 and move it to KAR 2222. Again, that would remove something and move it to 2222. This one would remove 4050 and move it to uh, KAR 2222. Again, making things efficient making their less regulations and easier for sportsmen and women to understand. And basically, the Wildlife Division recommended repealing one, moving into the other, and uh, the restrictions would be the Swan Lake unit of Boatwright Wildlife Management Area will be closed to all public access from October 15th through March 15th, except for department-authorized personnel and persons participating in department-managed activities. 
Doesn't mean that there couldn't be a hunt in there. It just means that you would be under the the you know the watchful eye of the people that run that area, and it would be for safety reasons. And um, this uh, got a, a motion and a second and passed very easily, which still makes me wonder why the one before it did not. But that's just the way that is. The next um, action item was really super interesting, and um, I think we should really be proud um, of what's getting ready to go down here. Um, we haven't had a wildlife tur we haven't had a wild turkey population study done in the state of Kentucky in I can't remember how long. And so basically the wildlife division uh, proposed that a wildlife turkey research project be conducted jointly with Tennessee Tech University uh, and the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. And um, in short, this project would provide uh, pertinent information to uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife and our bordering state to the south regarding the management of wild turkeys. So it's a partner event about our turkey populations along our southern border. And um, the outcomes of this project were, uh, there were six of them, and I'll read them to you really quick, was to document age-specific harvest rates of male wild turkeys across Kentucky, identify biological landscape and regulatory framework variables that influence observed harvest rate and determine which variables have the strongest influence, Use the, influ use the information collected above to develop spatially and temporally predictive models of how various regulatory changes could influence harvest. Use the information collected above in conjunction with summer brood survey data to investigate estimates of relative turkey abundance. Provide all data collected within Kentucky to the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources in Kentucky. And then also perform pathogen screening and describe a baseline health assessment for wild turkeys in Kentucky. So this would be a study that would be done by Tennessee Tech and our department. It would have, um, you know, a master's degree student working with it. It would also have our veterinarian uh, for the Department of Fish and Wildlife working in it to look at turkey disease. And it, and it would produce some very significant and uh, very interesting outcomes, um, you know, and it's going to deliver, you know, age-specific harvest data, uh, harvest influence, like what influences the harvest, whether it's biology, landscape seasons, season dates, how many hunters, hunter pressure, uh, and then use predictive models to, to help explain where we're at with our turkey population. And then, and then it would also be comparable to Tennessee because our season opens up much later than theirs. So are they taking more turkeys because their season opens earlier? You know, traditionally, our uh, biologists and the people that's, that originally stocked turkeys in Kentucky said that you should never open it before the, the 15th of April um, for any reason whatsoever. And Tennessee opens earlier than us. So it was really, really interesting. Um, the other cool part about this is the study will cost about $167,000. And 75% uh, of that would come from a federal grant through Pittman-Robertson. And if you've heard us talk before, Pittman-Robertson, our monies their excise tax monies on all um, hunting equipment, whether it be firearms or archery or both, and also um, for shooting, you know, whether you're just out plinking, you're paying an 11% excise tax, and that money is actually collected by um, the Department of Interior, and then it is paid back to states through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the form of grants. And those grants are payable up to 75% of any project. And so we will be applying for Pittman-Robertson money to pay for 75% of this scientific study. And then here's the really cool part. Tennessee Tech is paying the other 25%. Wow. So this is a zero-balance 
turkey population and turkey disease study that we are going to get in the state of Kentucky. Um, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to take a few years for us to get results, as with any of them. Almost all of these studies are three- to five-year studies. So hang on to your hats, folks. We're going to get some real scientific data about what's going on with turkeys. And uh, there was an easy motion a second, and that passed uh, no problem. Um, the next one was a uh, proposed uh, research project um, that had to do with state-level survey data from the National Survey of Fishing, Hunting, and Wildlife Associated Recreation. Um, so bottom line is is the way that our department gets statistics on, like, um, how much money was spent hunting and fishing in the state of Kentucky um, and, you know, get the data that we need to um, uh, know uh, how we're doing, you know, as part of the national landscape Um uh, this was a proposed research project. And this, this research is not scientific, like, biologically. It's, it's a humanistic study, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, on uh, what we're doing as, as part of, you know, hunters and fishers uh, in our culture and buying licenses and the economic impact and stuff. So the project outcomes for this were um, survey samples sufficient to produce estimates of participation and expenditures at an estimated co- coefficient variable. Of point zero or of zero point one five or better, uh, detailed survey project report explaining met- methodology. How did they get to the survey uh, outcomes, and then a, a detailed data set um, in relation in a relational format for possible future data mining and analysis. So this is the kind of stuff that the people at the top of our department use to look at. Um, uh, you know, participation rates of hunters and fishers and the expenditures that they make and how much money we put into the program. It's, it's more of a, you know, top end management type um, uh, research project. Anyway, um, it took a while to, to explain this one, but once it was explained, uh, it passed easily. These are numbers that the uh, management level at our department really need to know. So, uh, the department paying uh, their fair share to the uh, uh, FHWAR survey was passed. Um, the next one, uh, we're moving into fisheries here, was a harvest and sale of Asian carp uh, and update the allowances and restrictions here. And basically, um, <coughs> uh, um, the department... Um, spoke to uh, the harvest and sale of Asian carp. And as Asian carp harvest program uh, evolves, uh, the continued refinement and the allowances and restrictions are necessary to make the program more efficient and effective. Uh, and so basically as we're trying to, you know, um, catch and sell and or catch and remove more and more Asian carp, it's incumbent upon the fishery division to refine their recommendations and the uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission to approve those recommendations, and then it'll end up in our in our guides that are published. And so the recommendations were as follows: uh, to clean up the definition and wording to prevent the harvest of row-bearing species, as well as better define restricted waters. So that's to help you know keep uh, our row-bearing you know fish, our, our basically our bass and all all of our other sport fish um, from. Uh, uh, being harvested by people trying to, you know, net uh, or and or catch uh, Asian carp. 
commercial fishers would uh, be allowed to set their nets in any fashion uh, instead of just whip net sets. So right now there's a significant restriction on the way commercial carp fishers set their nets, and that's not been found to be, um, you know, uh, harmful. So they would open up and let them set their nets basically any way they wanted to. Uh, the participant requirements would be edited to change the phone number to, to uh, call to sign up for the program, remove the need to provide the fish buyer's phone number, and clean up the wording on what fishing location information is needed and notification requirements for changing fishing locations after assigned. Uh, that's just bureaucratic red tape to make things more efficient for our commercial fishermen. Uh, commercial fishers would be required to mark the ends of their nets with floating buoys and all fish harvested, posted, and transported under the program would need to be kept separate from fish harvested by any other method. The removal of immediate submission of daily harvest cards with a new requirement to submit that information at the end of each month instead of each day, allowing those fishing with a free Asian carp-only commercial license to fish in both commercially and restricted and open waters. Excuse me. Allow... Allowing those fishing for a free, this one's a word, this one's a tongue twister, okay. <laughs> Allowing those fishing with a free Asian carp only commercial license to fish in both commercially restricted and open waters. I got through at that time. Removal of the half mile on the water participant separation and a three day maximum occupancy of a requested fishing location restriction. Adding the ability for the department to restrict fishing in locations where there would be excessive user conflicts. Allow commercial fishers in the Asian carp harvest program to use unlicensed helpers by incorporating similar language in other admin regulations. Okay, so that is a mouthful. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine updates to the harvest and sale of Asian carp that are going to make it more effective and efficient. Um, and uh, that passed easily. <clears throat> Next was um, reference fish kills. We've had a couple of fish kills here in the last couple of years. The most famous is the, the Kentucky uh, River fish kill where the bourbon uh, rickhouse um, burned. I had to have a pause for the cause there. All this reading, <laughs> I got to have a drink. <clears throat> so basically, um, if you remember in the previous meetings, the department talked about they have a reference book that says what every fish killed in a fish kill by species, age, structure, size kind of a deal is worth. Well, that is called a material incorporated by reference, and it was old. It was out of date. And so this was an information item in the last meeting, and so it was moved up to be an action item in this meeting. And basically the current uh, um, uh, edition of uh, the investigation and monetary values of fish and freshwater mollusk kills special publication 35 from the American Fishery Society 2017 edition would be the new deal. And, w and so the old prices for fish that they killed would be updated to the most modern prices in this material incorporated by reference. And uh, this easily passed, no problem. Um, the next one, uh, we are moving now into discussion items, okay? So that I say this every time we have one of these is that um, there's action items, discussion items, and new business. And so basically, 
the items that are action items this quarter were actually discussion items last quarter. And anything brought up in new business is, in fact, only eligible to be a discussion item next quarter. So basically anything that we start off with starts off with new business. It can move up 90 days from now to be a discussion item. And then 90 days after that, it can be an action item. So that really gives sportsmen that are paying attention 90 days between new business, discussion item, and a vote. Yeah. Um, really, uh, really a six-month process to get anything voted on. So this one was on deer depredation permits. And basically, uh, at the previous meeting, the depredation permit process was described under Kentucky law. And it was described in the context of... Uh, a new admin regulation that they were trying to get across the finish line on wanton waste. So if you're going to have a wanton waste regulation requiring sportsmen to basically bring back all four quarters, the backstraps and inner loins of any big game animal and bring back the breasts of any upland bird, um, then how does that linked or how is that connected to uh, deer depredation permits and deer control tags. So a deer depredation permit for everybody that is not paying attention is the permits given um, for whatever depredation a deer is doing. They could be um, rubbing the trees, small trees at a tree farm and killing small trees and costing a tree farmer thousands, or they could be eating, you know, corn and soybeans to a high level. And that um, that commercial tree grower or that row crop farmer is going to be given depredation permits. Well, a depredation permit has to be used by a sportsman in an appropriate season with the appropriate method of take. Okay, so a depredation per permit is to be used by sportsmen and women. If you use a depredation permit, there is no problem whatsoever, even though that's not your normal deer permit. Okay, that's not the one you bought from Fish and Wildlife. That was a permit given to that tree farmer or that row crop farmer. You are just using their permits as an agent to take those deer off the landscape for that farmer. It has always been that when you killed a deer under the depredation permit system, you could use the meat. So then the question is the deer control tags. Now deer control tag is to be used out of season it is not to be used in the season, and generally speaking, those those deer are killed with a rifle. And what the department is trying to do, what the commission is trying to do, is make sure that deer killed with either a depredation permit or a control tag are not just left lay in a field, that the meat is used. And so what they want to do is the wildlife division wants to propose that they work more closely with the information and education division. So our Department Wildlife Division wants to work more closely with our Department Information Division to get the word out that you can actually keep the meat with the appropriate approval, right? So you were always allowed to keep the meat under a depredation permit with the approval from conservation officers, the Wildlife Division, say the Law Enforcement Division or Wildlife Division. You should now be able to also keep the meat under a deer control tag. And what the department also wants to do um, with their education division, information, information and education division, and the marketing division is work more closely with Kentucky Hunters for the Hungry to make sure that there's an opportunity um, to, if, if no other reason, if the hunter who the farmer recruited to take deer with a depredation permit can't use all the deer that they killed on a depredation permit, then they would try to get them to donate those deer to Hunters for the Hungry. The same thing with deer control tags. If there was a, 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 a doe harvest 
in a zone one county that took out, you know, however many does um, that were available under a certain number of deer control tags issued to a certain farmer, that those animals would actually be used. And so the department's going to work more closely with uh, Hunters for the Hungry. They're going to use their information and education and marketing departments to get the word out. And I can tell you, because I'm also on the board at Hunters for the Hungry, we have two refrigerated tandem axle trailers, uh, and uh, we uh, uh, other members of, of our board, uh, I helped move the trailers around, but other members of our board loaded them and took over a ton. Not a ton, you know, euphemistically, or a ton as a, as a, as a way to, you know, say, well, I got a ton of stuff. A literal ton. They took over a ton of venison down to eastern Kentucky, two weeks ago and and also in that trip took a bunch of other donated um regular livestock type meat and some a significant amount of dry goods so hunters for the hungry does an amazing job uh they have reefer trailers they have a bunch of volunteers and the department wants to hook them up with people who are using depredation uh, permits and deer control tags so that was a discussion item not an action item so the next um discussion item was uh reference um uh bear uh, hunting and uh, it's good news for the sportsmen um, and so uh, hunters have, have requested that Leslie Perry and Pike counties be removed from East Zone 2 and make each county its own bear zone uh, for the archery uh, modern gun and bear hunt with dog seasons the female bear harvest quota would be two female bears in each county for each of the three hunting seasons a pending proposal for changes to the bear hunting structure is uh, would also be effective for the 2022 season and uh, will be introduced as a new business item later in this same meeting. So basically what happened is um, Leslie Perry and Pike counties were part of East Zone 2. And uh, the way the bear quota hunt works is the f they can kill, you can kill 10 males, it doesn't matter. But as soon as you kill two females, it's closed down. Well, Leslie Perry and Pike counties have such a large population of bears that I think it was two days into the bear season they closed down all of east zone two because they immediately killed two females within two days so they're trying to pull leslie perry and pike counties out make them their own zones uh, establish their own quotas within those three new county individual county zones and then leave the rest of east zone two alone um, this was very interesting. It's going to provide a lot more um, opportunity for uh, hunters, and uh, it was moved on to be an action item uh, in the June meeting. Um, the next one was really kind of a tough one. Uh, it referenced walleye snagging, so the fish, walleye snagging in the Green River Lake tailwater um, stilling basin. So basically, if you've never been uh, to the Green River tailwaters, Green River Lake Tailwaters, um, there is a concrete box at the bottom of that spillway where the walleye congregate. So in the spring, walleye run upstream. Well, because we have a dam that dammed up Green River and formed Green River Lake, you have an insane, dense population of walleye at the bottom of that dam in the tailwaters. And what people have been doing for years and getting away with it is they've been adding uh, bigger hooks and heavier hooks to certain baits that are meant to be jigged up and down rapidly. And when you add bigger, heavier hooks to those baits, uh, it's pretty easy to snag walleye. Well, that's illegal. So there's a significant amount of discussion on how to fix this. Um, and uh, the 4th District Commissioner, Mr. Knott, was 
who's a previous tournament fisherman, he, you know, was really serious about trying to fix this. The conservation officers, uh, both Captain McQuarrie and uh, Colonel Gibson, gave great explanations of, of why this is difficult to enforce. And once they actually catch somebody red-handed and they get them, they pretty much always get a conviction. But the catching of them is very difficult. So, you know, it, it seemed very self-evident to us and to everyone watching and to the commission that this is really easy, right? You just um, put a restriction on fishing in that concrete spillway, which is about the size of a basketball court, right there at the top of Green River uh, as, the, as it, you know, comes out of the bottom of the dam and, uh, or the tailwaters, excuse me, right at the top of the tailwaters. Well, it's, it's really was not hard to decide what they wanted to do. What they wanted to do was change it to single hook only. Now, it doesn't matter if you're using a, uh, artificial bait or you're using live bait. It would be single hook only in that concrete spillway box. The problem was, based on House Bill 5 from two years ago, it takes a long time. House Bill 5 was a bill passed to make sure that we, the public, had a longer amount of time to give public comment. But what that did was it slows down how fast the department can get changes and regulations into the system. And so through the normal system, even if this was passed in the June meeting, it probably would not stop or make that rule uh, of single hook only artificial or live bait in the spillway box there uh, in the Green River Lake tailwater effective until 2023 spring fishing season. Um, so the department considered many ways to do this. There was a way that they could potentially include this with the package they sent up from the last meeting, um, but they would need, since this is a discussion item, they would need to have a special called meeting because this has to be, it could not be voted on an action item in this meeting. It's only a discussion item and their new process says it couldn't do that. So they'd have to have a special called meeting to move this from discussion to action um, as fast as they could. So if this is very important to you, look for a special called meeting that the department might have coming out anytime in the next few weeks and then in that special call meeting, they would approve this and potentially some other things they need to get done more quickly than June. And then see if they couldn't get this rolled into uh, the 2022 spring season. This will not affect the fishing season we're in right now. For this current fishing season, they talked about putting up some, some more signage and some other things to make sure everybody knew it was illegal to snag fish in the spillway. And that, you know, maybe maybe even on the sign, and I'm, and I'm supposing here that they would put like, hey, you know, it would be really good if it was single hook only in there. I don't know. But they proposed maybe some signage this year because the fastest this change, this reg change is going to uh, take effect would be next spring. And that's if they got it into a special call meeting here sometime soon. If they don't get into a special call meeting, you're looking at 2023. Um, uh, before that uh, happens. Um, the next uh, portion we're going into now is new business. So, uh, again, action items are what's what was a discussion item last quarter. Uh, new business items, um, uh, if we have an action item uh, this, this meeting, it was a new business item six months ago. So new business items will become discussion items in the June meeting. And they could be action items in the September meeting. Okay, so this is new business. All right, so the first piece of new business, and everybody should stand up and clap their hands. Um, we got a CWD update from the department veterinarian who, if you've ever heard her speak, she's a really sharp, really sharp lady. Um, 
she gave us a CWD update, and um, basically uh, the department uh, met its uh, sample goal. Uh, they had uh, 2,870 deer sampled and 60 elk sampled, and um, got the results back on those, and they have 70 samples still pending. Um, and the bottom line is we did not have a single case of CWD. So we have 70 samples still pending, uh, and this is as of last Friday. Um, we are podcasting uh, six days later, so as fast as we could get our act together to brief this to you in less than an hour and a half, what took the department eight hours to do. Um, we try to knock it out for you. Of course, now the department is doing all the discussion and all the research and all the paperwork and, and all of the debate. Uh, we are just summarizing so that you don't have to sit through. It is actually seven hours and 57 minutes, so eight hours. Um, the bottom line is, um, unless one of those 70 samples that's still out comes back hot for CWD, we don't have it. Um, there was a significantly cool and interesting briefing given um, uh, by Dr. Casey, our veterinarian, and I don't want to try to summarize it. Um, I would not do its service. So you can go on the department's website and look up Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting archive and then fast forward to new business for the March 5th meeting. And you can see the graphics and see Dr. Casey's update. But basically she gave a really good update on what's going on in the CWD positive states that surround Kentucky. Um, that is that. Um, and then there was discussion of uh, a new business item, which was really just information and discussion uh, by the Wildlife Division. Uh, uh, newly minted Dr. Hast, uh, he just got his Ph.D., and uh, he's also a really sharp cookie and, and interesting to listen to the things he has to say. Um, <clears throat> anyway, he talked about uh, our total bears harvested. There was 87 uh, harvested across the entire zone, 50 males and uh, 37 females. And uh, the reg changes to make this past bear season better really helped. And so there's going to be more reg changes to make next bear season even better and give more opportunity. I already talked about one of them, making Leslie Perry and Pike counties their own zone, pulling them out of East Zone 2. Uh, so that was a good deal. Um, they gave the elk numbers, and our elk success rate was uh, 47%, which is still, I think, the highest of any state in the union with an elk herd even close to the size of ours you know there's other states with little tiny elk herds like virginia pennsylvania wisconsin kansas has a small elk herd um for anybody with a sizable uh, elk herd 47 percent success rate is uh pretty damn good okay so then they also gave an update on the uh if you remember last year we got approved a uh elk population study uh using the university of kentucky and they gave an update on that. Um, they uh, caught uh, in the January elk trapping, they caught uh, 75 total elk and they put 33 um, vaginal uh, transmitters in those pregnant cows. Um, and they have currently 121 collars deployed and they were able to determine that uh, our cows are uh, the pregnancy rate of the cows that they trapped and what they believe to be the overall pregnancy rate was 82%. Um, some some really interesting stuff there. Um, then they went into deer. Now we've had a request um, by a sportsman's group in uh, in the eighth district, in the seventh, eighth, and ninth district, but more the eighth district, 
Um, and we don't ed- editorialize on this podcast, but we had a request from Sportsman's Group in uh, in Appalachia, all zone four, um, to you know ask the department to really look hard at um, reducing um, the deer harvests in that portion of zone four. And uh, the department gave a briefing about uh, the overall deer harvest, and then kind of alluded to that they would be publishing a white paper. And since the commission meeting, and Ben and I's ability to get this podcast done, that white paper is out on the street. So if you are one of the people that's paying attention to the request of the sportsman um, from uh, Appalachian Outdoorsman uh, and the, uh, their request for the department to look a little bit harder at Zone 4 deer harvest and potentially reduce the opportunity in Zone 4 in Appalachia, um, if you're familiar with that request, there is a white paper out there that you can get and, uh, and get the department's answer to the sportsmen in uh, in the uh, Zone 4 Appalachian region uh, to get their question answered. It was done in a white paper. But the, uh, the, the biologist gave an overall deer season report, so I'm going to share that really quick. Um, there was 141,601 deer killed this year, um, and the 10-year average is 137,000, so... Um, we were uh, a few, um, uh, you know, 4,601 deer above the 10-year average. Uh, the modern gun total was down to uh, 94,683. Um, last year it was 107,039. But crossbow harvest was up. So what, what uh, uh, has been predicted for quite a long time was that quite a few – uh, folks who only have that, you know, that really that three weekends of the gun season um, would expand their ability to hunt and the amount of days they had a field by buying a crossbow. And it looks like that is coming true. And uh, so, you know, there was a significant number, um, like uh, 13,000 or 12,000 and change less deer killed with a rifle this year, modern gun. But the crossbow harvest was up. Um, overall, uh, last year, the average deer taken per hunter was 1.3 deer per hunter. So they know how many people are hunting deer, and they know uh, how many deer were taken. So the average is 1.3 deer per person last year. It's up to 1.4 deer per person uh, this year. Um, they went into some of the EHD issues from the 2017 time frame, and those issues are really what spurred the request of the uh, gentleman from Appalachian Outdoorsman. And, again, they've written a complete white paper on this at this point. So, you know, us uh, trying to explain a uh, seven- or eight-, nine-page white paper on this uh, podcast is, is really just not going to happen. Um, but there was a lot of discussion uh, that came after the briefing of uh, the basically overall season data like they gave on bears and elk when they gave the overall season data on deer. There was a lot of discussion because uh, the commissioners from the 7th, 8th, and 9th district are aware of the Appalachian Outdoorsman's request, and so the department addressed that as best they could. But then, again, they came back and said we would be publishing a white paper, and for folks that are interested, that white paper is, in fact, available on the net at this point. Um, the final, uh, new business item was, uh, proposed, well, there was some new, new business that wasn't actually on the paperwork, so I won't say that was the final item, 
but uh, was enhancement of bear hunting opportunities. So a new business item that will, of course, be a discussion item uh, in June and an action item in September. So this could not take effect until 2022. But um, it basically says as black bears have uh, increased in Kentucky and uh, in number, and they've also expanded their range, um, uh, and that the harvest objective for bears has changed over time uh, with the current uh, harvest regimen our regime, the department, uh, wants to adjust things in two ways. They want to adjust the harvest at the county level, and they want to increase the female harvest quota um, and or reconfigure the specific bear zones. Um, even with frequent zone and quota adjustments, the last five years have yielded valuable data comparing the season length um, and uh, the number of bears harvested. And so basically the department wants to once again um, increase the bear hunting opportunity for sportsmen in Kentucky. And um, the following amendments uh, were recommended. Uh, number one was to remove the harvest quota requirements for all bear zone. Establish two bear zones referred to the attached map. And there's no way I could explain it county by county. So you're <laughs> going to have to look up that map. Uh, amend the minimum weight requirement for harvested bears to 50 pounds. It was 75. And basically what they're trying to prevent you from doing is taking a cub. A 50-pound bear is a yearling. Um, uh, I've hunted bears all over the West in Alaska, and I can tell you um, a bear that looks like a dog is a cub, and there's probably a sow in the area. If a bear looks like a really big dog and it's hanging out around you and – there is not a sow in the area. That is probably a phenomena of a weaned yearling. Now, normally, a black bear uh, sow reproduces every three years, and she um, has her cubs uh, in the first year during hibernation, and then she keeps them for two more seasons and then boots them out in the second summer. Um, and they're pretty big animals by then. They're usually over 100 pounds by then. But this would allow you to kill a 50-pound bear, which could potentially be a uh, weaned yearling. So just if you're out there and you see a 50-pound bear, uh, you heard it here first, wait and make sure mama's not around the corner because you cannot kill a sow or a cub with a sow or a sow with cubs. And then uh, uh, they want to um, amend the uh, modern gun caliber uh, to 2 or excuse me, to 0.264 or 6.5. It, it was, the minimum caliber was 270. So as 6.5 has become a very popular hunting caliber, uh, they wanted to amend it uh, down from 270 to uh, 6.5 or 0.264 caliber. Um, and then they wanted to open McCreary. Um, uh, they wanted to open a McCreary zone to chase and bear hunting with dogs in the Daniel Boone National Forest, uh, although the Daniel Boone National Forest is still closed. Let me say that again. They want to open a McCreary zone, McCreary County zone, to chase and bear hunting with dogs, even though the National Forest is still closed. The commissioners asked them to work on that. Uh, they, don't, they would rather the sportsmen didn't have to stop when they got to the National Forest boundary, but right now the National Forest is still closed. Then they wanted to amend the bear check-in requirements. Uh, successful hunters uh, must contact a biologist prior to leaving the bear zone, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be checked in. And then uh, they wanted to adjust the bear hunt with dog season dates um, to avoid the overlap with fall turkey season and the archery crossbow season. So, um, Ben? Um, that was all of the official new business, and there was some new new business. Um, uh, and uh, 
that uh, Commissioner Morgan from the 8th District wants to relook the new meeting format that we've been doing for about a year and a half where we only have four meetings a year. Mm-hmm. He didn't say what he wanted to do. He just said he wanted to relook the format. I know there's some people who think our our eight-meeting system was better where we had a committee meeting, and then the following month we had a commission meeting. Now, what that did is it meant we met eight months out of the year. Well, there's some folks that have suggested that we could have committee meetings on a Friday and the commission meetings on a Saturday. Commission meetings on a Saturday would fix the age-old problem of people not having to take a day off work if they were really passionate about an issue and they wanted to show up at a commission meeting. Right. And so people often mistakenly think if we have a commission meeting on a, a, a committee meeting on a Friday and the following meeting we have a morning we have a commission meeting that that's not enough time in between. Well, that's not how it works. The committee meeting on a Friday would only talk about the things that would be in the commission meeting 90 days later. So the Friday yeah, commission sure. meeting, if we did it this month, like the Friday commission meeting, which would have been March the 5th, would be talking about action items in June. Mm-hmm. The Saturday action meeting would be addressing the things that were in the committee meeting in December. Okay, so that's what some people are talking about. I don't know if that's what Commissioner Morgan meant, but he asked to add that into new business. So that could be flushed out as a discussion item um, next time. Um, So uh, there was some other discussion. Uh, uh, Dave Dreves, who's the acting fisheries director, um, wanted to give a quick update on fishing and then a 2021 fishing forecast, and he did that. So if... uh, that's important to you. Um, you know, you can check in right at the end of the meeting before they went into executive session. And um, I'll give you a quick update of what Mr. Dreve said. He said there were seven new phyllo sites uh, worth about $24.5 million in the state. Um, and that there was a significant amount of fish habitat created with partners throughout the year and, and put all over our lakes. And that there were 37 lakes now in the state of Kentucky that had downloadable GPS coordinates for that habitat so that you could go to the department's website and get the, you know, the MGRS data or the latitude and longitude for um, fish habitat and punch that into your fish finder and go right to it and be able to see it, you know, on your depth finder or your on your sonar. So 37 lakes now have that uploadable. Um, he said there were... 2,983,000 fish stocked, and I can tell you I helped stock about 1,000 rainbows this week, and it was so much fun. Um, and then uh, he said there were 7,661,251 pounds of Asian carp harvested this year, and that wow. is our third consecutive record year. And with that, there was a couple other oh, – Ben, your ride is here. <laughs> I don't think they're looking for me. Yeah, they went right by. <laughs> That's what happens when you have a when you have a podcast at Mordecai's in Springfield, <laughs> and the local sheriff goes screaming down Main Street, code blue right there, code five blue lights. Um, anyway, uh, that is the end of uh, the commission stuff update on the lawsuit and update on all the legislation and we got that done in one hour and 26 minutes and if you tried to if you tried to attend the commission meeting (laughs) that would have been seven hours and 57 minutes 
That's a whole day. And then that didn't even include you gave a federal update. I gave a legislative update, and we bullshitted at the start of this thing. So yeah, we got that done pretty quick. Yeah, and I can't talk. I need a drink. I say it's it sounded like it was overall good news. You know, you like hearing the the CWD report. You like I liked all the one and waste stuff, but man, I love good bear news. I yeah, love it. <laughs> I love good bear news too because I like eating them. A lot of people. I, I have I have served bear to I don't know how many people. For their first bear serving, and every time they're like, holy crap, yeah. I thought this was going to be bad. I can't believe how good that was, you know. So I'm a big dude. I, look, I'm I'm excited about the turkey study. I'm excited about the compromise that the commissioners got to on the Bobcats where it's still voluntary. And I hope and pray that sportsmen out there pay attention. And look, look, if it's your first Bobcat, it would be, in my opinion, a crime for you to be required to cut the skull up of that thing and then ask a taxidermist to repair it. That's a crime. Especially if one of the young people I mentored killed their first bobcat while they were out hunting. You know, and oh my God, I'm so glad we brought this up. I forgot to say this on the bobcat piece. Folks, the most, probably the most important piece of the bobcat motion that I think I forgot to say was uh, the commissioners also agreed to move bobcat season up a week so it would open a week earlier and they said it would be their goal when this study is finally over is that bobcat season would be open the entire rifle hunting season because most hunters take a bobcat incidental to deer hunting right most people are not out there with bobcat calls and predator calls trying to take them they kill it incidental to deer hunting so um, the, the season would be moved up a week if the Bobcat piece that we talked about right at the outset of the commission meeting uh, goes through. But to me, it would be a criminal thing if, if one of the young people I'm mentoring takes a Bobcat out there deer hunting. And I have to say, look, uh, you know, look, partner, look, you know, look, honey, I'm sorry. I, after we skin your cat out and I cape, cape the face out, I got to take this bone saw and cut the cut the jaw up. Yeah. You know, mandatory submission. So if it if it was their second Bobcat. Yeah. Turn it in. Absolutely. Science is important. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was excited about that. The turkey study. I mean, um, there's some good stuff Good stuff going on here. Really, really good stuff going on here. I, um, uh, you got any final thoughts? I don't. Did a good job covering it all. My God. It was a mouthful. But what, you, you know what? It. It, in, uh, I, I'm scheduled to be hunting bighorn sheep north of Yellowstone in Montana during September, during the September meeting. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm going to break this to you on the air. I need you to sit through that eight-hour meeting in September. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll call you on the sat phone. Well, I'll call you on the sat phone, mm-hmm. and you can have me on the podcast via sat phone, <laughs> and I'll do the national issues. Gotcha, gotcha. Because uh, they won't have changed for the ten days mm-hmm. I'm in the mountains. You know, but Think you I get YouTube out there. I will be missing. <laughs> <laughs> I will be missing the September commission meeting because uh, I'm I'm scheduled to hunt bighorns. Uh, in in southwestern Montana, just north of Yellowstone. So I'm breaking the news to you now. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, I don't really have any final thoughts. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting, interesting things going on. You know, my, my goal and, and Ben and I's goal is to inform the sportsmen and women so that you can participate in the process. The lowest level of participating in the process is calling your district commissioner and talking to them about these things look participating in a peaceful thoughtful way in our 
uh, in our democracy starts at the lowest level, and that's talking to your appointed commissioner about the issues that are important to you. We're not all going to agree. We're not all going to be friends. I don't get Christmas cards from them, and they don't get one from me. We work together, and we try to be collegial, and we try to get things done and move things forward for sportsmen and women across the state to make things better. And I truly believe they're trying and we're trying, and that's the goal. So we hope this podcast informs you. Um, We hope that it you know, get you to a point where you can do a little bit more research and feel confident to contact your commissioner. Uh, and if you're the kind of person that already has a relationship with the commissioner, maybe foster a relationship with the, the senators and representatives in your district about fish and wildlife legislation and tell them where you stand, you know, because thoughtful, peaceful participation in our democracy is the way it was designed. You're not being political by telling politicians and appointed commissioners how you feel on issues if you don't tell them how you feel they're going to vote the way they want so our job is to inform you and hopefully you'll participate in the process Uh, we only do one of these a quarter Uh, if you want to reach out to us and talk to us about any of these issues um, you can get me at ranger r-a-n-g-e-r at the slowhunt.com ranger the slowhunt.com and how can they get you ben bishop at slowhunt.com yep bishop just like the chess piece or the catholic dignitary at the slowhunt.com and uh if you want to find out more about national issues the best place to do it is at backcountry hunters uh and anglers website which is www.backcountryhunters.org if you want to find out more about uh legislation uh, in the state of kentucky that is sportsmen and women centric uh, the best place to get that is at the Kentuckiana Safari Club Legislative Affairs Committee website, and that is www.kysci-lac.com. Again, kysci-lac.com. And, um, folks, uh, you're going to hear some really uh, cool uh, instrumental music at the start and finish of this podcast. And that's Mr. Grayson Jenkins. Grayson like Grayson County and Jenkins like Jenkins. Um, The easiest way to see Grayson's music, and I say see it, is on YouTube. Uh, Just go to YouTube, type in Grayson Jenkins, and uh, music videos will start popping up of his very kind of cool, bluesy, bluegrassy country music. And uh, we're very thankful for him to allow us to use his music to open and close the show. Uh, So thanks again, Grayson, for that. And then our buddy, uh, Walter, over at Louisville Toppers. Um, We don't take any sponsorship for this show. Uh, You know, we we bought the equipment ourselves, and and we spend our own time doing it, and we spend our own time researching it to do it. Um, But we do have one old friend there in Louisville who – it's not that he's old. He's just an old friend. Uh, His name's Walter, and uh, he is the operator of Louisville Toppers at uh, 4040 Preston Highway in Louisville. And um, you can find them at louisvilletoppers.com. That's the city of Louisville, T-O-P-P-E-R-S, louisvilletoppers.com. If you go to uh, see Walter, and let's say you need running boards or Nerf bars or a tonneau cover or, a, you know, a camper top cover for your pickup truck, uh, or a brush guard. I mean, they do so many things. You want one of those deck systems put in the back of your truck. Whatever it is you need, they call it upfitting. If you need some upfitting for your trucker SUV and you go see Walter at Louisville Toppers and you mention this podcast or Colonel Abel 
or Ben Bishop and Mike Abel in this podcast, he will give you a discount. So it is only to help Walter out because we love him, and we're not just helping Walter out. We're helping you out. You can get a discount if you go see him. So, uh, again, this podcast is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network. And remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. One, two, one, two.